to positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Welcome, welcome, Vincent Price voice, folks. Welcome, Vincent Price, <laughs> Trump, folks. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> we're just stepping inside the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're literally in someone's head right now. That is creepy. Creep. We're yeah, in we're, your ears. We're, in we're your like head. worms. Yeah, it's in your head. Pod, it's in your head, in your head. Podcast, America. We've deviated from our spooky theme. I just wanted to show the troubles are not spooky in the same way. And they're guns. Is that what is zombie about the troubles? Right, dude. With their bombs and their guns. Yeah. And their guns oh, and their okay. So the black and tans, the Brits are, are the zombies. I never really thought. I about think this. everyone is supposed to be the zombie in the song, and it doesn't take sides, and that's why it's a hit. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Jake Flores. Alex Patak is here. Welcome to the podcast. Anders Zombie is here. Cranberries Lee here. Hello, Cranberries Lee. Cranberries Lee. It is the month of Halloween. That's the name of the month, baby. <laughs> I'm an all month. Let this podcast linger. Halloween. I watch horror movies every day of October. I'm one of those people, and I'm feeling extra, I'm vibing extra hard with our podcasts now. So there's going to be lots of cool music and uh, just weird gothicy. On accoutre, uh, uh, not accoutrement. Accoutre you can't see the clothes I'm wearing. I meant uh, like well, accents. I can. Um, I have been reading a lot of H.P. Lovecraft lately in preparation for what we're going to talk about with our guests today. Our guest Talia Levin wrote a piece, interestingly paralleling the um, the nocturnal child sacrifice ritual trope. As it pertains to, um, you know, anti-Semitism, to the Satanic Panic of the '90s, to QAnon, all that stuff, and it got me. If thinking, you love the Wicker Man, you'll love Talia Lavin's in- Lavin's interview in our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was making me think about H.P. Lovecraft, right? Because he wrote a bit, but he used the the kind of recurring trope of the dark ritual in the night a little bit in his stories. Um, you know, C- Cthulhu is this thing you have to summon in the night in your, you know, weird wizard tribunal island circle thing. Um, I also read a great story he put out in his later years today 
called um, Dreams in the Witch House, which I think is kind of fun because he doesn't realize that Witch House will later go on to be a ridiculous genre of music that mashes up, uh, I think, Swisha House and like goth music. Like a, like is a, that what that is? I, if I remember correctly, I think that's what it was. I think that was the joke. I could be wrong. It was a thing for like a year. Witch House. It was like it was like goth, like rap or some shit. Um, hmm. might be what wrong. what era was this? This is like fucking five or ten years ago. It's like kind of recent. Okay. Wait, is it when you're in the frightening club? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dreams in the Witch House, though, is a story that um about it's a, it, it embodies a lot of H.P. Lovecraft's tropes and recurring themes a lot of which are very racist that uh it's one thing a lot of people know about hp lovecraft and uh he, he, that's relevant to kind of where i'm going with this i guess it's a story about a like a, a college student who's studying mathematics and he's living in this fictional city of arkham where all of H.P. Lovecraft's stuff takes place. And he lives in this house that is said to be, you know, this this crazy old lady used to live there. They call her a witch now. And uh, she went crazy. And all, the room is built all bizarre, herky-jerky, angularly. And he becomes more and more disturbed by the weird angular lines and, like, designs on the walls and stuff. And he starts to have these fever dreams where he's transported into like this ostensibly fourth dimension place where like he, you know, he sort of says that he, he stops perceiving his own body and the shapes and beings around him in like the three dimensions. And it's this hard to fathom, you know, continuous MC Escher painting type thing. And, uh, he, sort of it's a great story you should read it all of hp lovecraft's stuff is available online for free um he's guys dead. support hp lovecraft um, uh he's doing great work <laughs> he's got a patreon <laughs> he uh <laughs> he's in arkham dsa uh, oh somebody had to have That's started that by now um, I mean, it I'm has not to exist already. <laughs> but I'm, so, that, this isn't news but that's the name of the uh, asylum from gotham Batman. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Arkham and, DSA. And the DSA is trying Just to get that all, on the, all the prisoners out of there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the killer croc should be allowed to vote. <laughs> He's a product of, uh, you know, society. Killer croc. Do not do tropes to the scarecrow. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, the story kind of revolves around this character as he's studying these really insane mathematics that are, uh, re- re- you know, they're he's d- digging deep into the back of the Necronomicon and getting into the part where it gets into geography and he's using ancient, sacred, scary, fourth dimensional mathematics to access this scare, this otherworldly realm where this witch lives who's trying to pull him into it and like ruin his mind and stuff. It's really cool. H.P. Lovecraft's actually, I mean, a great fucking horror writer. It's, this stuff is fun and unnerving and shit, but he's also hella racist, right? So like in the story, the, <laughs> the room is rented to him by, for no reason, H.P. Lovecraft informs us, a Polish landlord and all of his neighbors <laughs> just have these ethnic names and stuff. And, um, you know, there's a black, there's like a, a figure who is like black, like the color, he's just like a shadow person. But I'm he's not laughing at that part. Referred- I was laughing at Polish, not laughing at this. 
<laughs> the black man in the story that's supposed to be from an otherworldly dimension, he goes out of his way to tell you, you know, he uses all sorts of old-timey race science words to explain <laughs> he's not this kind of black. He's actually like a space black. It's fucking crazy, right? Allow me to be he's like, clear. He's like a fly, not a man. <laughs> Yeah, right. well, you're walking into the part that's a problem. Then. Yeah. <laughs> so why am I talking about you Lovecraft on our socialist podcast? <laughs> well, because I think, you know, you could make an argument that the xenophobia of H.P. Lovecraft's work and the horror are one and the same and they come from the same root and sort of what he's describing is his fear of other people and other worlds and things like that and uh that's elder so... gods moving into your neighborhood yeah. dating your daughter <laughs> if hp lovecraft was on that next door app it would be buck wild <laughs> i just want everyone to know the landlord's polish yeah. we're moving on <laughs> there's an alert for that yeah there's a, they're summoning tentacles. They come over here with their tentacles. They don't clean up after New to the themselves. neighborhood. What kind of black is the mailman? H.P. <laughs> <laughs> Lovecraft also, uh, he's one of those writers who only became kind of famous after his death. He was ghost wrote for Houdini once. And other than that, he was just a pulp writer. And he was sort of resurrected after his death. So he died very poor. And he died in 1936, 37, something like that. And what interestingly was a socialist at the end of his life. He was, um, and I don't know how much you could really read into that because he was really into uh, Roosevelt, FDR, and, uh, you know, wrote a little bit about capitalism's monstrosities in an H.P. Lovecraftian way, but was also still hella racist, which. People argue about and say, well, he couldn't have been racist if he was a socialist, but I don't know if you've been around the internet lately. Uh, it's totally possible. <laughs> I thought, I thought he made he... like a big apology yeah, for being racist. Yeah, that's what I heard do. He, re he repented like a deathbed, like born-again Christian situation. Oh, That never happens. Yeah. That is pretty funny. I mean, I guess, yeah, maybe he yeah, maybe he, he did, in fact, sort of uh, look back on the whole thing. I don't know that he was necessarily a big capitalist to begin with, though. I think I guess what I'm getting at is I think he's a little bit mythologized by people on all sorts of the yeah. the political yeah, spectrum. Yeah, yeah. I read a reason. And then on the other hand, too, when the you write books your whole life and die poor, you're like, actually, this doesn't work. Uh, destroy it now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Cthulhu monster or whatever. <laughs> Those last four minutes of his life, he was really fucking enlightened. Okay. <laughs> the novels in his head were some of the best anti-racist literature that the human could humankind could he said muster. several anti-slurs replacing all of the slurs he said before for 80 <laughs> years yeah he renamed his cat into human man <laughs> i forgot about the cat that's funny the cat is the funniest thing about him it's so fucked up yeah i know and what's interesting is you know i mean if he had maybe like had a death scare and then not died we could have had a second phase of hp lovecraft where he wrote you know specifically in his style but it's it was all woked up and shit and about how capitalism is the horrible tentacle monster and stuff and you confront your own weird xenophobic fears by you know d climbing into the black abyss and then discovering that it's your own head or some shit could have happened but it's not happening instead we you know we just he wrote the hit show lovecraft country 
which takes place after he's dead. Actually, he didn't write that. So that was somebody else writing uh, about him and in his. No, I'm tradition. saying the new woke Lovecraft could write it. Though. It's a missed opportunity. Oh, oh I see. Yeah, that show sounds is like funny the real shit because one of the characters played Johnny Cochran on the uh, the O.J. Right. Simpson show, and he's just... There's a part where he's in, like, a wizard tribunal, like, and it's a serious, you know, horror thing where he's, like, <laughs> fighting with this wizard tribunal. But if you've seen him play Johnny Cochran, it's impossible not to imagine him <laughs> as Johnny Cochran, <laughs> like, yelling at the wizards about, you know, if the hat fits, you must acquit, and all this shit. <laughs> I don't know. It would be funny if... Uh, I, I mean, the real... Um, fucking Lovecraft, if he was just a Roosevelt supporter because he was like super, super enthusiastic about his Japanese-American policy and like nothing else. <laughs> That's what got him into to social democracy. Yeah. Look, whoever gives me the camps, just give me that guy. Yeah. I mean, that's points for the we have to get more racist to make socialism happen, people, you know? Right. That's how H. we got. Lovecraft right. and he's doing the like make Biden say slurs posting. <laughs> yeah man Which, it would be yeah. so great if he wrote a story about B biden because he writes stories about people going insane and it's real fun to read because it's kind of just like you know they singularly follow these characters as they descend into madness so he could write about biden's schizophrenia or his like paint madness or uh, yeah like a tale of the you know the the, the paint uh you know the 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 lead well or something like that like all the paint is coming out of a scary well or he could write um a story like the one i was describing a lot of his stories are about people as they research things and they sort of go down this mad scientist tack and they learn like forbidden knowledge that makes you go insane because it's from ancient cthulhu times right uh, he could. We could do a story about Trump, kind of like researching Regeneron as he uses it on his own body and stuff, and then going like insane and becoming a Regeneron infested person. That'd be fucking cool, you know. Mm -hmm. Although the research did make him younger, it came at a terrible cost. <laughs> yeah, it'd be cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, is Trump younger now? He has been. Admitting well, to it on apparently, regeneronated. Apparently, he's a senior, though. I don't know if you guys knew that, but he's over sixty-five years. He admitted to that on camera. Well, didn't he was attending like a seniors uh, meeting or something? It was like I don't know if you know this. I'm one of you. I'm a senior. Well, it was <laughs> one of his green screen videos that, like, the background is the White House lawn. But it's clearly Dude, like just it's hit. just hard. It's hard to hate on someone feeling so them, you know, in the moment. He's on top of the game right now. Yeah, I mean, it could be that the steroids just like bring him over the edge, you know? Yeah. And uh, I'm not going mean, to lie. I am Regeneron curious right now. I want <laughs> what he's having. He's offered to have the military fly it to everyone with COVID. <laughs> in Regeneron helicopters. So yeah. that's a real option on the table. I can't wait. Um, he's fully transitioned into high, high hopes for a live in Trump. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he has I know. That energy. He's so positive now. He's like, uh, he's, he's got like, like posy vibes or something. He's getting a weird 
bright and shiny person. He gets he used to be like angry and stuff, but this weird yeah, like no near, one wants that. That's why he was losing near death experience recovery. Trump is very funny because he's got like a new lease on life, <laughs> and it's all about how good he feels. And he's still killing us. <laughs> right, it's a, it's the Scrooge uh, poking his head out the window. You boy, what day is it? <laughs> no one cuts a new bill until after the election. <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't know if it's going to. Um, it, it, it's not looking good for him poll wise, but the question is, are there going to be enough people who just don't give a shit about it? Because like, I'm seeing stuff that's very strange in in Minnesota, where I'm from, where the Iron Range, which is like a solid blue uh, region. It has been for a very long time is like leaning Republican now because there's like uh, iron workers who, for whatever reason, I think, I don't know if it's Trump's policies or just whatever the economy has been doing in the iron industry has really benefited them. And their wages have gone up over the past four years. And now they're going to vote for Trump. And that could swing Minnesota, which would totally remake the electoral map. So um that kind of shit has me worried you know like i feel like the support he's gonna get outside of his diehards is gonna be from shit like that people who are willing to look past all that stuff because for some fucked up like if like a very temporary way um they're they're benefiting economically well he also you know what we could see is a like a like a rise of like a Cthulhu like cult around Trump all over the country because he did like kind of die and then come back yeah. from the dead. So he has effectively turned himself into, you know, like a, like a cult figure, like a martyred, you know, like a Christ figure, but also a Frankenstein of sorts. Um, you know, also Frankenstein is the Christ of monsters in a way. Yeah, dude, you know how there's a way you can like legally die or you'll, you'll like be dead for a second medically and then your heart will, you know, kick of back. Of course. In? Yeah. The Frankenstein I, method. Yeah. I wonder if Trump's going to want that to be done to him intentionally just to say he was literally came back from the dead. I I mean, you know, I honestly I think that the if, if someone put the myth out there that that did happen it, while he was in the hospital, that's all it takes for like the myth to take hold and then this you know phenomenon to occur but to be sure if anyone put the idea in his head i heard that happened to be sure he could go to the hospital and be like all right do it to me like shock me until i'm dead because i want to be like trump too you know reborn or whatever Doc, i just saw the yeah. movie choke you gotta choke me <laughs> i want to choke <laughs> yeah. i mean best case scenario i think it's safe to say among friends here uh that best case scenario is he he croaks within the next like day that would be great yeah it'd be awesome. um i don't know if it's gonna happen but like Pence, it's only gonna allow him to come back more powerful true yeah but i do i mean i wonder though like what would happen with his base and with the republican party because like pence just isn't going to he might maybe he'd win i don't know no but, no way yeah i think he would probably lose and if he did win uh he's not gonna stick around in the, and inflame people in the same way that that Trump does, you know. I mean, he would still give all of the levers of power of the executive branch over to the Republican uh, death cult, which is, you know, the main problem of the Trump presidency. It's easy to forget because he's such a psycho. Um, but no, I feel a hundred percent confident. If he died, the Trump, the Trump fans 
the uh, only Trump fans would not show up for anyone else. Mm-hmm. Too busy waiting to show hole to their big orange guy. <laughs> Trump only fans. <laughs> Disgusting. Um, Anders, I, you had a hot scoop, I believe, that we wanted to get to. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. So uh, we're a couple days out after the thwarted kidnapping of uh, Gretchen Whitmer, the governess of Michigan. Um, is that sexist for me to call her governess? Governor of Mish. Is it? Is it? I'm declaring. I wouldn't it have as thought so, now. except I'm you self-correcting. Said it. I'm okay. just improving in front of your eyes. So. I, I think it's like Madam. He's like a machine. You say like <laughs> Madam Governor or some shit like that. <laughs> just Miss Lady Governor. Governor Gretchen Whitmer. <laughs> lady <laughs> Governor. Governet. Um, I mean, it's pretty obvious that this was like, like it's obviously bad that these men want to do these things and think these fucked up uh, ideas. Um, but like it, it appears, as is the case with most of these FBI things, that the informant uh, was really pushing the kidnapping thing, you know, in a right. way that it's it, not necessarily clear that they would have been inspired to do it were it not for this right. informant. And Wait, was there like, an agent? It's experimental. Pro- was there an agent provocateur situation? Yeah, that's what it looks like. Uh, it's experimental because it's the first time it's been tried outside of a mosque. <laughs> yeah. Oh, interesting. Right, because they've been doing this stuff to the left for a really long time. And, like, is is it the case that maybe we're better off with these guys behind bars? I don't know. I mean, that's it's kind of hard to say that if you're a prison abolitionist. Um, so, like, obviously, I'm, I'm not shedding any tears for for these guys. Uh, but like we, I, I, I think there's a danger in letting this distract from all the awful shit the FBI is doing. Like I have this conversation with, uh, a relative recently about like, well, you don't know all the good stuff the FBI and the CIA does, you know, cause we don't That's know they're, they're probably saving our lives all of the time. <laughs> I couldn't name one us. good thing. Right. Yeah. And it, it's <laughs> like, if you think that was actually True, if they're actually doing that constantly, you don't think you would hear about that even right. a little bit. They would tell you, don't you think they would so yeah. much because they do declassify <laughs> stuff. And like, right, this is the thing. I know exactly how much good the FBI does. They fought the KKK once or twice during like Carter's administration, and it's in all the books because they're like, look, wow, you know, we did a thing right. that you guys like. Um, well, fan service. It is interesting, though, because I, I, I think I mentioned this on the show before, but like when the radical right really got going, like, I mean, of course, the 70s, 60s civil rights movement, they were really nasty. Uh, but when what I now I think you would call the uh, militia movement uh, that we're seeing in Michigan, um, the really strong roots of that, I think, are also in the 80s, actually, when we had Reagan, which who, of course, is maybe the furthest right president we've ever had, but he was a globalizer. He believed in open borders, basically. He believed in uh, free immigration for the cheap labor aspect. He didn't actually care about people. Uh, And he was, you know, the, the EU was being created, and there were all these international organizations, the beginning of GATT, uh, and he was a zombie, which is spooky because it's October. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. 
But what people don't realize is that nativist far right groups were like really in full swing under Reagan. Like there was a, that's when that shit really started. And so there were a lot of clashes in the 80s and up till, you know, H.W. Bush, Ruby Ridge, like this shit was going down. And then it really um, hiked up under Clinton. And that's when you have the birth of the organization that are these uh chuckleheads are a part of here the uh, michigan militia <laughs> don't pull any punches anders you can say it chuckleheads bunch of goofballs <laughs> they are <laughs> trying to kidnap the governor <laughs> <laughs> madam governor great aggression yes. whitmer <laughs> silly duck silly goose <laughs> <laughs> but the michigan militia so this is the group that these these guys were part of um also home to timothy mcveigh for a period of time uh terry nichols as well um and the the guy norm olson who uh was the head of the group right after the oklahoma city bombing insisted that it was the japanese who did this <laughs> do we know it wasn't well it was right after uh the om shinrikyo gas attacks which is his reasoning <laughs> Uh, that there was, and they did hate America for justified reasons. Option Rico, but yeah, um, specifically Oklahoma, the state in the center of America, they <laughs> get them in their heart, the heart of America. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that it, yeah, was Timmy McVeigh. He's he's admitted to it. Timmy McVeigh. Uh, yeah, Anders just called him. I just want to point out to everyone. <laughs> but what they don't mention though is, and this is another. So, like, yeah. These examples are brought up, right? The FBI, um, hey, they went after Timothy McVeigh. They went after these uh, far-right militias. They've done it. They've gone after the KKK. But after Oklahoma City, and this is also a couple years after Waco, so you have to take that into consideration. But right after Oklahoma City, there's some pretty strong evidence of links between Timothy McVeigh and Elohim City, which is this like compound in Oklahoma. It's like out in the middle of nowhere, uh, like this old school traditional society. I think Jake has done stand up there a few times. Oh yeah. It's like a, a, like a nationalist far right white supremacist, like family, basically it's this like cult Amish Nazi Amish organization. And the hit Great that crowd. went out on <laughs> didn't like the, the hit- filthy stuff but good crowd <laughs> but the hit i think for oklahoma city came from there and the fbi declined to investigate they were like eh, we got our guy and anyone who thinks it was just timmy think is just kind of a kooky kooky butt um so they so they really don't care about going after the right in the same way that they would had this been, you know, the new Black Panther Party or something like that. Right, right. They they like to stitch it up with one guy and leave the whole yeah. other thing hanging out there. That's interesting. Um, I, I have a question. I haven't really read much about this, like uh, the people who tried to kidnap uh, Madam Lady Governor uh, Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, are they Boogaloos? Because I know the Boogaloo movement has also roots in the same like muck as uh, Timothy McVeigh and all that early nineties stuff. I don't know if they're Boogaloo from, from their, um, from pictures I've seen of them. They don't appear to be, I don't think they're wearing uh, Hawaiian shirts and stuff. Um, I think they come straight out of like the Michigan militia tradition. 
Okay, interesting. Which is more camouflage type. I, but th- then again, I don't. I don't really know. Maybe. Well, yeah, all that stuff's like kind of intertwined and mixed up. It's yeah. like uh, inner scene stuff that like. It, they might as well all be the same people. It's like how, like, you know, if somebody asked us, like, oh, we need alt comedy versus clubs or something, we'd have some big explanation, but it doesn't fucking matter, yeah. really. Right. <laughs> yeah, I do boogaloo rooms. I do I do trad mish, trad yeah. malish rooms. <laughs> it's yeah. all good. I do, uh, uh, <laughs> I, I do McVeigh runs here and there, you know, <laughs> straight up the middle of the country. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so I'm seeing now. Apparently, there were some ties to the Boogaloo movement. I had so, a yeah, feeling, I so. but I yeah. called it. So, so it's like a, it's a vague. It's plot. also October, and it's the Boogaloo movement. It's the Boogaloo movement. It's the that, boog- yeah, that would be a great movement. costume. I, that I wouldn't do, but someone should. Is that you're a Boogaloo boy? Well, oh, you, you just think a good camel? Halloween costume would be to be a racist white nationalist ghost? Well, <laughs> yeah. let me. Do, I don't mean to burst your bubble, buddy, but it's been done a few times in this country. Talking about the Ku Klux Klan. and he's the president. <laughs> I forget what. Oh, I see. With the yes. No, I was talking about. Well, the he made the KKK. They look yeah, like yeah. ghosts. They do. It's hilarious. They're so <laughs> evil, but they look like a little goddamn boo bucket from McDonald's. They look like what you would imagine a ghost is, and I think we are one of the first ones to tap into this. Yeah, no one's <laughs> ever thought about it. That's a fact about the clan that is. I mean, I it's it's so uh, like on its face, you don't think about it very often. But it is weird. They dressed like that because they're trying to invoke the image of ghosts. That's silly. It, alternate timeline, they all dress like mummies or Frankenstein's or something or a different uh, person from the uh, the monster mash. You know. Yeah. Mm. I thought it was just because of the white, and they're trying to. I actually, white. I read a, I read a post on this recently that the first iteration of the clan had, uh, like disguises essentially, so you could go out and there were just like organic grassroots white power communities that banded together to keep minorities down, and then the second iteration of them, uh, actually made a uniform, and that's where you get the spooky ghost one because they, uh. They're the the actual like white sheet look is very similar to like a medieval um like a, a Christian kind of thing. Oh mm. a white or knight. a medieval Catholic um uh, uh uniform. But they pursued Catholics, so it, it doesn't really make any sense. But yeah, it right. didn't it it's just because they're fucking addicted to hierarchy that everyone eventually was like, Look, you gotta wear a spooky <laughs> ghost thing. Yeah. We went with spooky ghost. What's funny to me is don't... that there's a like uh like every like every once in a while so the if you're fighting the Ku Klux Klan in a video game the white ones are the the peons and then there's like a purple ghost that comes out yeah. and he's like the mini boss <laughs> and there's he's a, the dragon it's like Pac-Man yeah <laughs> there's like a green one sometimes <laughs> what does that mean I'm like a water I clan I like that guy. for the first version of it. The first version of it had like, okay, some of us are ghosts, and then I'm a Dracula, and we're burning a cross on your life. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't get like how anyone would be like would find that admirable in any way, like that you would be excited or proud to see a, a clansman. Like at best, they look funny, you know. <laughs> yeah. At worst, they're terrifying. But nowhere in there is there like, yeah, that's my fucking team. 
you know we could definitely do a whole episode on this i think a lot of it is like confederate resentment and i say that not knowing anything about it and thinking that they're ghosts (laughs) spooky ghosts yeah we should do a clan episode they're hilarious and stupid and weird let's do a clan episode all right upcoming clan episode hey listen if you're a musician and you want your music played on the clan episode email me Well, we could watch because uh, I tried watching Birth of a Nation, and that shit is so fucking long. Boo, uh, boring. Right. Yeah, pacing was different back then. It, but apparently, there's another Not one. Sex. <laughs> birth of a <laughs> nation. Appara- how did how did the birth happen? You know what I'm saying? Right. They how never, did it happen? It was artificial insemination, I guess. Artificial um, insemination of a nation. Yeah. <laughs> But apparently there is a better one and a shorter one that was made in the 20s movie. I mean, one that's but it's by a black guy, Oscar Michaud. Uh, that's was like about being terrorized by the Klan. Um, and but it's the same somehow. story. No, 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 it's not. It's just a movie from that era. Um, oh, there's a better movie than Birth a better of the movie. Yes. Oh. The Homesteader. Yeah. Which is uh, released in 1919. Not a great year for uh, a lot year of year for black filmmakers. Country. 1919. Yes, That's they've seen better really days. Really amazing that he made this thing. That's actually incredible. I want. They made uh, another one about 19 in 1920 about coming home after World War One and getting just you know. <laughs> There's a sequel movie about the uh, uh, racism he faced for putting up that other movie yes. <laughs> immediately afterwards. <laughs> I want to make a prequel to Birth of a Nation that's a porno called... It's like a white supremacist porno, and it's the whitest people I can find. And it's called The Fuck of a Nation. Or like... (laughs) uh, Fuck of a Nation, you're saying. Wait, what is it called? When you conceiving conception of a nation? Conception of a nation. Fuck of a nation is better. I'm here to help you punch this up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and if it's a porn, lucky you, you could just use the incredibly racist porn industry we have <laughs> and pick almost anyone in it, <laughs> and you're good to go. You have the whole cast. Yeah. All right. The the nation of America, what we are in and we are podcasting about, was born when two spooky ghosts decided to jack each other off and uh, fuck each other. It's a ghost baby. <laughs> You're here first, folks. And I'm I here to watch it. I'm here for the movie. With an upcoming film that I'm making, as I'll be director, called Fuck of a Nation. <laughs> GoFundMe link in the... Support Jake. In the, yeah. Support my side project. All right. Well, we should probably get into our interview, yeah? Yeah. We yeah. are going to speak now with journalist Talia Lavin about uh, her recent piece on the trope of the, uh, I can't read the exact word for it, the dark satanic blood libel. ritual in the night, blood libel, um, as it pertains to anti-Semitism, the satanic panic of the 90s, QAnon, all of the things. There's a motif that white supremacists have been working with for a long time and uh, various other factional hateful people. Um, and also... We will talk about her book, Culture Warlords, My Journey into the Dark Web of White Supremacy, and uh, what she learned about Nazis by hanging out with them undercover on the internet. All right. Enjoy, everyone. 
Let's go to the tape. Hit it. You love saying that. <laughs> Thank you for coming on the show. Um, yeah, I mean, we're all fans of your uh, journalism and writing. Uh, specifically, we read this piece that you put out recently about the um, sort of satanic child sacrifice trope as it pertains historically to anti-Semitism, to the satanic panic of the 90s, and now to crazy fucking bonkers QAnon people. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about um you know what's going on here why you wrote it what uh how all those things are related i guess yeah i mean so i'll say like i've been writing about the fringe right for a while and some of the most amazing people i've talked to throughout have been medieval historians because there are a lot of ways in which the white supremacist movement has sort of hijacked a lot of medieval images and like the coolest people I've talked to are medieval historians who are fucking pissed that this is going on. <laughs> um, like, they're like, fuck this. I did not spend the entirety of my life writing about like the old Chronicle for just like white supremacists to chuds to use it mm-hmm. for justification. So, um, if this I was has all been I terrible started, optics for the crusades, if I was the historian that yeah. originally discovered the Kekistan frog guy, I'd be furious <laughs> right now. Yeah, no. I mean, well, there's a whole documentary about the the Pepe Frog cartoonist. I, yeah, right. Like, this is crazy. I made a frog who likes to smoke weed, and so yeah, like the, the Middle Ages are basically the the frog who likes to smoke weed of, of like misused by white supremacists. Totally. So I read this really great post um, a couple of years ago by a historian named Michael Barbazat, um, who wrote about PizzaGate and this trope called uh, The Nocturnal Ritual Fantasy, um, which was first written about um, in the context of European witch trials. And it's Mm. basically this idea that recurs like throughout Western history, where you have a dominant group accusing an outgroup, a social outgroup, an undesirable group of this very specific set of depredations. Like the reason why it's like this recurrent and fascinating trope and why it fascinated me is because it's specifically the idea that the people that you are intending to persecute engage in rituals by night with demons to abuse children. And so you've seen that play out. Like it actually even predates Christianity. So like Romans used it to accuse Christians of this kind of um, like early Christians of this kind of evil. Then Christians like took it over really enthusiastically and used it against heretics. And 
um, you know, Catholics used it against early reform, um, like uh, Protestants. Uh, and then, of course, throughout the course of medieval history, this was used against Jews um, in the form of the blood libel, which is the idea that Jews, every Passover, kidnap, murder Christian children and use their blood either to like perform a demonic inversion of the sacrament or to bake it into our matzah. Um, which <laughs> matzah is just like really flavorless. So it's a, just a cracker. <laughs> the worst thing matzah has ever done for then. me has caused me constipation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, like the worst thing matzah has ever done for me has caused like horrible constipation. I There's no blood in it. In fact, it's sort of particularly perverse because there's a particular like prohibition in the Torah against eating blood. Like we're not allowed. That's why kosher salt is called kosher salt because it's the salt that Jews use to salt their meat and draw out mm, all the blood um, first. Oh, so, I know that. So yeah, it's a particularly, particularly, so they're just throwing all the facts at you. Yeah. But I do. Well, this back, this back salt is in. far saltier than yeah. the salts you're used to. <laughs> It does have like a real the the conspiracy in general has a real pagan feel to it. Like we already know there are nature spirits and we know you're working with them. Mm. I think when you get into the Christian era, it really aligns with Christian theology. I mean, one thing that struck me as I was doing research was just like how many Americans like really fervently believe in the devil. Um you know, almost as many as say they believe in God. And so, like, once you get past their, like, Roman era, <laughs> the idea of, like, consorting with demons becomes this powerfully Christian idea. And so the nocturnal ritual fantasy trope recurred not only in the Blood Bible, certainly in the Satanic Panic of the 1980s, and you really see it in QAnon as well. So, mm. like, all this stuff about, like, Hillary Clinton, like, eating, like, children's flesh and like sucking their blood and like these orgies and demons are there and like black lives matter activists are consorting with demons and just like the demon stuff is really powerful on the fringe right yeah it's really yeah. interesting that it's sort of echoed all the way back from early like rome persecuting christians and then christians persecuting everyone else because i uh i've read a little bit about how um the Romans sort of came up with like uh, mythology and stuff like this basically after, you know, their experiences with the fighting with like uh, the Goths, like the Visigoths and stuff back then. And also I think why a lot of this has this pagan bent where it's just, Oh, you know, these wood people they're you know, they're, they're up to something or whatever, but it echoes through history, you know, in early American history, when you have like, uh, like we just did a series on John Brown being like a Calvinist in the North, you know, the, everyone considered him to be this heretic who was out in the woods doing, uh, you know, God knows what, uh, not being you know, civilized, like in society or whatever. Um, and yeah, there was a lot more woods back then too. Well, it's interesting <laughs> so. that the, like this demonic dark ritual thing that is, you know, it implies the woods that still exists and is still cast onto people now. But now, instead of the woods, since, you know, we've expanded the entire continent and there's no, like, geographical, scary place to be part of this mythology, it's kind of just, like, projected into the internet, you know? 
It's just well, yeah. And then another popular, uh, like a popular physical manifestation of like where this could be taking place is tunnels. Yeah. So like QAnon had really active right. uh, mythology that there, there there were tunnels under Central Park where thirty five thousand children were being held for like the chemicals in their blood to be like preyed on and sexually abused by the elite and like have their blood drunk. I sound insane saying this, but I just read about it for research. Still, <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, the way legit. it sounds coming out of my mouth, and it sounds weird. <laughs> it's what such they... an interesting theory because the tunnels. I mean, if the elite are the one drinking the children's blood, they have the rooms they can go to. They don't need to make new ones under Central Park. You could just do it on Madison Ave somewhere. There's a nice lobby. There's kids inside. It's just not the same when there's sunlight and it's during the day. Like the the sun dilutes the blood. It's not as potent if it's not eaten underground. I mean, I'll have to take your word for it. Assume a feature of conspiratorial thought needs to have this extra element to it where it's like a puzzle. It's like a thing that, you know, you figured out is happening right in front of you and you know you get to upload all the pictures of the ground from above and you go look here you see you can tell that there's a tunnel there and stuff like that it's uh you know yeah you're like part of the tribe with the secret knowledge and what was interesting to me about the top so first of all QAnon is like this very fascist super like pro-authority movement it's interesting it's like a, like, the elites are corrupt, but, like, B, it's, like, the military and police and Donald Trump that will save you. So it's an interesting, like, polarity there, but it's very authoritarian. And so the fantasy, the, like, specifically the Central Park fantasy was that, like, Marines had, like, taken the cap 35,000 captive children from the tunnels and spirited them away to the ship, the U.S. Navy ship Comfort, which was in New York Harbor for like the coronavirus crisis. So it was like, Corona's fake. The reason the ship is there is to rescue the mole children. Marines are heroes and Hillary Clinton sucks children's blood. Like it's, it's a really bizarre mind. Like, and the minds that believe that wholeheartedly fascinate me. They're very capacious. It seems to me. Mm. Um, but the idea is, yeah, it's like secret knowledge that you have. And it, yeah, it has to be secret. It has to be tunnels. Because like just facing up to the degree of like elite deviance that actually exists and like they can just steal whatever they want, do whatever the fuck they want, which is true. <laughs> like you don't have to invent tunnels under Central Park to be like uh, elites act with complete impunity in America. You can just like look at tax records and shit. <laughs> well, well, maybe the... The, the tunnels offer the angle where the you get the police out of it because if there was a room with security guards and stuff, well, then they would be the bad guys too. And that's not how the story goes. Yeah, no, and I, what struck me about the tunnels specifically as a fascinating parallel to the satanic panic was that there was also a conspiracy theory about tunnels back in the 80s. So the McMartin preschool trial was like one of the bigger, the biggest satanic panic cases. It was um, in California. This, it was like the most egregious miscarriage of justice like ever. But this crazy woman who's like, whose uh, son was at the McMartin preschool started basically extracting all these confessions from him or calling the police all the time. And like seeing that her son had been sexually abused at the preschool. And then like, 
these psychologists associated with the cops like started using these like really coercive methods on these preschoolers and basically like the confessions that they extracted from the kids you know who all initially denied being abused became more and more outlandish and saying like there were goat men you know the one of them could fly and there were tunnels beneath the school and that's where they hurt us and so there were actually multiple excavations by the parents by forensic psychologists like a forensic archaeologist they hired they got like, a backhoe out there, right? They got a backhoe. <laughs> Gloria Steinem funded one of the tunnel digs, actually. <laughs> like, it was like really, like, that's the thing about the satanic panic, the daycare abuse panic, um, that is a little different than QAnon. It was very transpartisan. It was like, you know, uh, prosecutors were going after people to look tough on sex abuse. Feminists were like, finally, someone is taking, you know, incest and, and child abuse seriously. Um, but really, it was like such a commonplace. It was like, of course, there's a rampant, you know, epidemic of daycare, daycare based child abuse. It's a little like the way people believe in human trafficking. I was like that human. Tra- I was going to yeah, say sorry. that that comes up a lot because, uh, you know, we talk about ice a lot and also um, the anti sort of sex work bills that have been passed in the couple last couple of years and how they both use the specter of human trafficking, which is interesting because it's a really useful propaganda tool because you get both like liberals who think it's, you know, it's, it's a, like a feminist thing that's against, you know, trafficking women. And then also you get, uh, you know, racists basically who always use this image of child trafficking in, you know, they're like the 14 words, the white supremacist dog whistle, and also just in, um, you know, in, in this idea of, you know, always swarthy, always brown, scary human trafficking villains that are alluded to in, uh, you know, Liam Neeson movies and shit like that. And something I thought was really funny in your article was uh, that hadn't occurred to me was that, um, you know, if you crunch the numbers on all like supposedly how many children are being sacrificed and trafficked in all of the QAnon conspiracy theories, it comes out to like something like 10% of children would have to be missing for this stuff to be real, which would be absurd. Yeah, every single, like millions of kids vanishing. And that's just like needless to say, that's not the case. Like mm-hmm. most kids in the U.S. are alive. Like, you know, many more children suffer the, from like hunger than trafficking. But it's like, <laughs> but like, like feeding hungry kids is a lot less sexy than the idea that there's like an elite cabal. Like, kidnapping like literally uh, millions of children a year the two people that i talked to that really gave me some useful perspective on this stuff one is this unbelievably amazing journalist named debbie nathan she's at debbie nathan two on twitter fuck the debbie nathan one by the way (laughs) this debbie nathan is number one in my opinion she wrote a book called (laughs) satan's silence um in the mid 90s when there were still satanic panic cases like being prosecuted that was like admirably skeptical of the whole thing and really one against the grain of the moral panic writ large um, and like very assiduously delved into sort of the innocence of, of, of a variety of different um, uh, defendants in these moral panic cases. But what she told me is that like moral panics are essentially cyclical. So what we're seeing now is almost a recurrence of this cycle. And like this idea that like your children are in danger. Well, like what do children signify right their hope their innocence they're the future and so it makes sense that 
you accuse your enemies of the worst possible thing, which is like hurting the innocent, destroying the future. So, so moral panics. And the other person that I think is really worth listening to on this subject is Michael Hobbs, who's a reporter at the Huffington Post. And he's just done like yeoman's work debunking basically the human trafficking moral, the current human trafficking moral panic, like basically crunching the numbers, talking about how a lot of these quote unquote, like sex trafficking rescue organizations are like evangelical and don't actually provide any material support. And like how trafficking laws make it like, so that, you know, a runaway, like most of the kids that are at risk who actually go missing or who wind up trafficked are like people like kids in the foster care system, kids who run away from home and like, you know, trafficking laws cover them, them performing survival sex acts, like for a place to sleep or something to eat. So like the answers to solving the problems of vulnerable kids in society are just like not that sexy. They're like, Mm. like help, like make the foster care system better, like give more resources, help children in any material fashion, but like having an enemy and using the specter of child, like mass child sex rings as sort of a like wedge in the culture war is like much sexier and easier than actually materially helping anyone. Yeah. No one would like, maybe if we like uh, got an anonymous account that was like giving numbers on child malnourishment in America (laughs) and like ways to ways to fix it. You could get some, some paranoia acts on the case. Yeah. Uh, Pick a different letter or something. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I mean, I mean, I think it's like a lot sexier if you imagine like the mass, like I think like fun, fundamentally at its heart, like QAnon is a is an authoritarian mass murder fantasy. Mm-hmm. Like it's really about like wanting this day of executions of like the Democrats and like like random rich Jews. Like it is fundamentally the idea that like someday these people that our theory posits are responsible for every ill in the world are going to be rounded up and shot, um, you know, by right. the, by the government. And so it's, that's, that's the fantasy at its core. And then it encompasses all kinds of other things. Well, let's it's less about the kids than it is about the, the murder. Yeah. Let's, uh, uh, let's psychoanalyze a little bit because I know that you did some gonzo journalism in, uh, in terms of the alt right and, uh, you know, took a true detective sort of style, uh, route into darkness to try to understand what's going on with these people, and that's related to your upcoming book. So, you know, what do you think is motivating the particularly conspiratorial-minded alt-right members right now? Well, I, I look at Q and so time is a flat circle. First of all, Hell that's yeah. my true detective. <laughs> that's the only thing I know about true detective. <laughs> Sorry, that was pretty much uh, it. I basically have the cheekbones of Matthew McConaughey as well so thank you for making that link um all right all right no right. Uh, <laughs> god my bantering has banter I, I tend to speak I, I speak i tend to speak in paragraphs so you can cut me off at any time but, no that's but, it's good I mean, <laughs> we have time to fill <laughs> QAnon and the and the far right like the people that i so QAnon, I explored for the article, the far right, like sort of white supremacist, white power movement. I looked at more for the book and, and they're a little bit in different silos. There's definitely overlap. But like for me, actually, what draws people into both movements is very similar. It's this idea of like 
I feel lost. Where do I fit in in the world? Is there some cause I could be part of? Um, you know, I think a lot of us feel this way. It's a pretty universal sentiment. Um, for me, like combating white supremacy is sort of an answer for how I figure out feeling lost and confused and feeling self-doubt. Um, but QAnon is like, you can be part of the movement on covering the truth of who's hurting kids. And like, you, you know, are privy to a secret truth and part of a movement. And with the white supremacist white power movement, it's like, you are the agent of saving the, like the white race, you know, you um, are can be the one to help usher in like the collapse of a degenerate civilization and, um, and like the replacement of it with a pure white ethno state that preserves our white future. Like, but the core of like why people get involved in these sorts of things to me on a psychological level, it's just feeling alienated, feeling lost. And maybe there's a class element to it in the sense that like, you know, if people were provided with more material support in their daily lives by a government, um, there would be less of this feeling of sort of catastrophic ennui. But um, what I observed in my gonzo true detective shit is like, you know, like, for example, I, I, there was an excerpt of the book published today where I sort of went undercover on a white supremacist dating site. And like, I love that those exist. So by the way. many people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. White.net for a European, for a European division. That's their, that's their wow. thing. Um, the, oh, the, the reason why I actually started catfishing there was because they had so few women. They had like a suggestion that you hand out a flyer to, um, to women saying like, you look like one of us, our survival as, as is as important as the survival of the Siberian tiger. Oh, join us on white.net. <laughs> wow. Wow. It's and you were supposed cool to give the woman the fire and then take it back. <laughs> um, so I was like, okay, they don't have enough women time to become one. Um, uh, but yeah, no. So what I noticed is there's like so many software developers, <laughs> Like so many people, like it's not, there's this like enduring myth. And I think a, a myth that for a lot of people is about self-absolution that like every white power guy is like toothless Cletus in his mom's basement, you know, that these people are sort of driven by unique poverty or ignorance. Like they couldn't be like anyone I know. They couldn't be in my neighborhood. But like the truth is these core psychological feelings of loss, alienation, um, desire to be part of something bigger than yourself span all socioeconomic and, uh, and geographical divides. What is, what is this crazy sound that's feedback sounds happening? I don't know. I hear is me it in it. <laughs> we'll fix it in post. It's Alex's cat. Um, but you it, literally can't fix it in post, Anders. You never do the post. <laughs> why, yeah, you don't know what that's the why I say is. we can fix it in post. <laughs> I don't have to do it. It. <laughs> but it's interesting how you know, going back to the Middle Ages thing, like a lot of the alt right people now will say they they you know mythologize the Middle Ages as as white people. Um, but from at least how I understand it, or it's been explained to me, back then people didn't really think of themselves as white. Like there were a lot of other, you know, bigotries and 
fucked up hierarchies, but whiteness as a concept was still kind of being developed at that point. So right. well, what would you need it for? Right. If you yeah. if your world is that small, like how is that helpful to you? If you live on the west part of England and you only ever sometimes see like a French invader whiteness is not very helpful in anything you're doing I, I might be talking a little out of school here so feel free to tweet at me if you're listening to this and this is hella wrong but it is my understanding that whiteness as a concept was kind of constructed in reaction to uh you, the the catholicism being this thing that banded together all the early imperialism coming out of like spain and the Habsburgs and all that shit and the the uh, you know Britain basically wanted to compete and did not have a religion that could sort of unify everyone that was in their coalition. So they just sort of came up with this ethnic identity that now we just have hanging around, fucking everything up. Uh, could be wrong. I read that a long time ago. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Sorry, there's Ghost a train, train. In, in the background. Um, <laughs> on that train. Sorry. Yeah, it's, it's going yeah, through a tunnel. No. It's God, sorry. Um, what is it doing in that tunnel? <laughs> that's my train of thought, guys. Hey, wow. Whoa. Uh, sorry. Um, no, so, sorry. Yeah, it got lost. My train of thought. No, uh, certainly. Mine's off the rails. Mine is <laughs> underwater right now. Goddamn crazy. Collapsed uh, a bridge. Like, certainly anyone talking about, like, the white race in the Middle Ages is, like, being a ridiculously anachronistic human being. Like, mm-hmm. the organization of humanity into like the races was maybe like came about in the 1700s you know and uh and really reached its nadir in the uh 1800s and early 1900s like you know phrenology race science like for a great primer on this i'd recommend checking out the book superior by angela saini which um is a history of race science it's great um cool but yeah, uh, the um, what's interesting about white supremacists using the Middle Ages as a locus for sort of the origins of the white race and like the origins of their mythmaking, whether you're talking about um, them envisioning themselves as crusaders and using the Templar cross and using the battle cry Deus Wult, God wills it, as was common, like happened in Unite the Right in Charlottesville, and it's a pretty common white supremacist dog whistle to this day. Then you also have a separate silo, somewhat overlapping, of people who use the Vikings as sort of a source, source myth, use yeah. pagan geography, worship Odin. Um, but in both cases, they're using a pre-racialized Europe as a, as a model for like the origins of the white race. And like I studied um, the origins, like I studied nationalism in college. I mean, that wasn't my major, but like one of the things I studied uh, was nationalism and the origins of various nationalisms. And each of them start with a founding myth where you, and American nationalism is no different, where you, you imagine a mythical past, you project your current design onto it. Um, and white nationalism, this kind of pan global whiteness that like posits that whites need their own separate ethno states is really no different in the sense that it usher like it sort of has to in order to properly gin up the troops conjure like conjure up a um mythologized past from which the noble impulses of preserving the white race has to have to spring so so they're using these 
really anachronistic, really idealized images in the Middle Ages, augmented by sort of many decades of lily white uh, popular culture imaginings of these eras, um, you know, to to under like underline their desires for violence and world domination. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's just like any other form of nationalism. It carries its own myths. Right. Um, yeah, the revisionism is pretty interesting because it's like you know obviously the same thing that Trump is kind of doing with 1950s America, and you see so much in just modern racism. There's always this redefining of the past, which is just this bizarre form of uh, uh, you know warlockery. You know, it's fake. It's made up. It's, it's a you tricked all these goddamn guys on Twitter into changing their avatar to something and then pretending it's about a history that it's not about. It's really bizarre. Yeah, like, oh, let's use a Roman statue, like, to show the nobility of the West throughout, like, history. And it's just, it's good. There's a great account called At Medieval POC that just, like, shows images of people of color in medieval art, which I think is just fantastic. It really, like, is sort of a subtle fight against this strain because there were people of color in medieval Europe. Of course there were. Like, you know, there were black people that existed in the Middle Ages. Like, it's not like there was, you know, a world ever where everyone was white. Like, that's just not how it worked. Like, and, yeah. you know, like, uh, you know, a lot of Europe was Muslim at the time. Like, it's like things are not as clean cut as as the the white supremacist founding myth wants you to believe. And that's, again, the closest why you could get. Stories. Right. Is if you went way back, you did have a world at one point where everyone was black. Yeah. <laughs> and that that could be the compromise for you if you want one nationality. <laughs> yeah. And then we like pasty faces went up north and learned to really like salty fish. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I don't know. It's like it's been interesting because for years, even before I started writing the book, even before I started sort of really mouthing off about this movement just by virtue of like being a Jew and like being a woman who talked a lot. Like I wound up being like the target of some of this white power rhetoric. And so I, they have looked, (laughs) they've been gazing at me longer than I've been gazing at them. And like what my impetus was in, in writing the book was to sort of just say, um, you want me to shut up and fuck you. (laughs) Like, absolutely. That's basically it, right? all of this boils down to people who are just too damn horny, right? <laughs> Get it out of your well, system, you know? <laughs> I mean, I, I guess. I mean, we're just too lost or too angry. Like, people are looking for places to put their rage, I guess. Yeah. Um, and those are all I things guess. that can be confused for being horny. And I think that's where <laughs> the problem is. <laughs> I have to say, joining the white supremacist movement is like a spectacularly bad way to get laid. Like all of these places no. that I like. I mean, I mean yeah. like, look at this white supremacist dating site. They had to like beg women to join. Like, <laughs> like all these all these places, like all these chat rooms that I was like eavesdropping in, were just all dudes, like, like ragging on each other. Like it, it's just not. If you're looking to get laid, this is not the way. Young so men are you saying? Yeah. Are you saying there's uh, more men than even DSA? <laughs> yeah, like actually, <laughs> I mean there are white supremacist <laughs> women, and I would never like 
I think one thing that gets sort of um, often written, I read a great book in for research um, called, uh, uh, fuck, what's it called? <laughs> As the Women of Massive Resistance, I think it's called. It's like about, like women have always been a driving force in, um, in white supremacist movements and white supremacist right. policy. And you see that with like Amy Coney Barrett, for example, mm-hmm. um, Phyllis Schlafly, like there are always women who will choose the protections of whiteness over any advancement of their own gender or equality writ large. Um, and there are certainly white supremacist women um, and women's groups, trad wives, you know, women who, who really do their best to further the cause of white supremacy. Unfortunately, they are slightly less dumb than their male counterparts. And my efforts to sort of infiltrate those spaces were a lot less successful, really? um, which is why they don't feature that much in the book. They're uh. just like, can anyone vouch for you? Like, oh. like, why was your profile created like two months ago? And I'm like, fuck. And the guys are like, <laughs> I can't believe you're here. Yeah. Kissing your feet. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but I had, a lot of the book was just like, cre- like creating these characters that had like fully fleshed out backstories. And sometimes I was playing like five or six different people at once. And then, and uh, like in all these like different chat rooms and sorting it out and like maintaining some level of sanity, like was difficult. Um, so that was, that was interesting. I just found, I made a lot more, but there's a great book called sisters in hate by say we Darby that gets around this problem by doing sort of case studies of three prominent women in the white supremacist movement. I've heard of um, this. Yeah, I recommend that. I, I don't know why I'm just like, it's like book recommendation power hour. You should read my book and then I'll eat. <laughs> yeah. No, re, we're re, starting a Wikipedia with a book list. Read Talia's yeah. book. As of the last yeah. few episodes. First. Books that we pretend to have, have read because they're mentioned on air. Well, I learned um, uh, a lot today. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to go on this white supremacist dating app and I'm going to, to I'm going to go on as Q. I think is the way to spin this because everyone will want to mm. hook up with Q, you know, and <laughs> I'll do drops. But, like you have to be, you have to be Lady Q. You're just like I'm Q, but surprise, Q's been a woman all along. Is Q a guy yeah, but, in the mythology? I think it's like unclear. I mean, Q is anonymous, right? right. Q, that's the anon art. Yeah. But what if Q was a lady? I'm sure there's an erotic novel on. Amazon that like already <laughs> has this premise. I one thing that I did uncover for the piece, I mean it's not really like it just took a couple clicks, but what was fascinating to me is how there's a train again. I'm sorry. No, it's cool. <laughs> it's okay. It's spooky. We're getting More train a, of thought. We're getting a goth theme going here, especially during yeah, October. So, so I'm calling from the British countryside and um Oh, you're in Britain. For the listener, Talia is in the woods, and we don't know why. You know, it could be for (laughs) any number of reasons. (laughs) I'm actually um, I'm hoboing around the country in various bags and wagons, and that's 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 how I'm doing a book tour is just throwing books out of the backs of trains. But what we know about Talia is she's calling from the woods, and there is definitely a tunnel nearby that a train is going into. Ghost. These are the only two things you can say for sure. Thousands of captive children are in this tunnel. <laughs> yeah. Are you going sometimes up? Sometimes it sounds like the devil is in the audio. <laughs> <laughs> are you going to be going up to St. Andrews? Um, yeah, no, I'm definitely. I'm in. Uh, I'm going to get a wig and kebab um, in Yorkshire. Yeah, I mean, the point is, devils aren't coming for your kids. Devils aren't. <laughs> 
desperate here. It's just like basic human instincts like lack and rage and loss and confusion. And like what I encourage readers of the book to do, the like sort of message I want people to take away is like the people in the white power movement are not monsters. They're not unique. They're not uniquely impoverished or ignorant. They are people. And it's incumbent on you to accordingly, as an ordinary person, fight back in whatever way you can and and be an anti-fascist. I'm an anti-fascist. I think everyone should be. Yeah. Don't let... Yeah, I think that something we can kind of glean from this is that uh, it, on some level, all of this conspiracy about Satanism and child sacrifices and, uh, you know, this cult and, um, you know, all this QAnon stuff is like, sorry to be too on brand here. It's a scary story and a funny, a fun way for you to engage in anti-fascism is to like... You know, your job here is to go around and tell people like this is not real. <laughs> you know, it's a it's a fun way you can sort of change. Uh, you know, by battling this narrative a little bit. I mean, the story as old as time is. You know, the fucking house on the end of the street isn't haunted. It's just you know, Boo Radley's a nice old man. You know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No. I. I mean. I think what was really striking to me was like how just durable this idea of the nocturnal ritual fantasy is, and and how long it's stuck around and how um you know we we always want to think like oh in 2020 we're so advanced and we're we're doing great you know but but these ancient narratives still have power over us and and um you know these narratives become dangerous when you know what you have basically in QAnon like sure it's a shiny object and like it's fascinating and weird and I think that's one motive for a lot of journalism about it for me, what what struck me about like wanting to write about it is that once you have posited that your political enemies are consorting with demons to drink the blood of children, um, and like you are actively fantasizing about them their public execution, like all it takes is you know a word to um, to activate that kind of sentiment, you know. And we've seen that we have a presidency that's pretty good at stoking people into violence so you know you have just like a banked ember ready to blaze into an inferno and so i think it's important to just understand where it's coming from and the sort of human psychological motivations behind that yeah yeah well i don't want to take up too much more of your time so uh we should probably promote your book and wind on down here uh where can our listeners read your stuff uh get your book all that sort of stuff so I'm on Twitter. Um, you can just search my name, Talia Laven. My handle is really annoying. It's at chick underscore in underscore Kiev. I lived in Kiev for a year. That's what I made Twitter. And it's a stupid pun on chicken Kiev, which is like oh. a... Uh, I think that's pretty good. Uh, it's a chicken breast wrapped with butter, which is kind of... If I had to be a food, it would be that. Um, so you could, that's where you filled can Filled with the blood of children, though. <laughs> But no, filled with butter and herbs. <laughs> That's my blood. I'd be um, unhealthy. God, I'm just gonna shut that down. I am. I am technically full of blood, actually, but it's mine. It's only mine. I hope so. Um, yeah. 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 So, <laughs> um, and the book is called Culture Warlords. Um, you can get it. Um, uh, on Amazon at your local bookstore if you are lacking 
in funds, you can call up your local library and ask them to stock it. And um, I would be very gratified if, and it comes out next week, next oh. Tuesday, October 13th, um, October 13th. I don't know when this comes out, but you know, October 13th is the date. Uh, I believe that's that on uh, so, Tuesday. Um, yeah, this will come out before that. Yeah, that's like Tuesday. Tomorrow. So yeah. thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for letting me speak in paragraphs. Absolutely. In spooky train haunted uh, <laughs> wild of the countryside. So take care. Yeah, thanks for, sure. for coming on. I look thanks. forward to reading okay. the paragraphs. Guys. All right. Yeah, there's dozens of paragraphs in my book. Okay. <laughs> All right, I'm going. All right, that was our interview with Talia Levin. Um, let's wrap it up, guys. What do we have to plug? Wrap it up. Um, hey, thanks for listening to our spooky show. I just released my third and most powerful podcast, the radio show, Theater of Delights. Do you wish you could escape into another realm of wonder? Slam that subscribe button, dear listener. And I'm on Twitter at Patak Jokes. All right. Anders, what you got? At Anders Lee here on Twitter, Dursley1 Instagram. Uh, check out Redacted Tonight. You can watch clips of it on YouTube and full apps on portable.tv. All right. Uh, I'm at Feral Jokes on everything. My other show is called Why You Mad. You should listen to it. It's really fun. It's uh, me and my friend Luisa Diaz talk about art history, stand-up comedy, political theory, socialist shit, Latino shit, all sorts of shit. Um, I, other than that, if you are a listener and you would like us to play your music on the show, I'm going to start doing this again, especially since it's Halloween and it's... Uh, is it still Latin Heritage Month? It ends on the 15th. It's a month. That That's right. It's still Latin Heritage Month. <laughs> I don't know why that has anything to do with this. <laughs> Fucking send us, uh, you know, specifically if you play post-punk, uh, gothy shit, punk, 
metal, whatever. But really, honestly, whatever. Just send us shit. I like to play this stuff on the show. Sure, send alt. Play us some alt country. Play us uh, some psycho Billy Mojo Nixon shit. <laughs> Did you know that Mojo Nixon is in the Super Mario Brothers movie? I learned that the other day. He plays Toad. Fucking crazy. Um, what? Yeah. So se- uh, send it to uh, poddamamerica at gmail dot com. That's the best way to ensure that I see it because my DMs are a nightmare. All right. Feeling a bit like Austin Powers because I'm missing my mojo, baby. <laughs> I'm missing my mojo, Nixon. I got my mojo, Nixon back. <laughs> All right. It's, but uh, that's right. it, though. Out like Stanchera. <laughs> Out like Stanchera. Out like Stanchera. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everyone. It's the end of the show. If you enjoyed the interstitial for music it was by my friend jake hart it is tentatively titled go away he can be found on instagram at jake hart eats brains and that's about it and our uh, outro music will be by dead oil this track is called drip 